0: Good morning. Welcome back to another Bible study in this little book called The Letter to the Philippians by the Apostle Paul. We are entering the fourth chapter today, the fourth and final chapter, actually. And this will be the next to the last um, teaching from from this letter. This go-around, at least. I'm sure at some point in my life I'm going to Listen to or listen to. At some point in my life, I'm going to teach through the book of the Philippians, uh, and uh, and I'll probably do it much more slowly. I've, uh, these these little shotgun sermons are kind of um, they're not they're not super reflective because I only give myself half an hour to prepare, and I take I take kind of big gulps, um, larger sections, and I would love to at some point slow down. And go through these these books um, in a more detailed way. But today is not that day. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and, and open up to the book of Philippians. If you've been following along, hopefully you know where the book is. But if you haven't figured it out, um, there's a table of contents in the front. And there's a search bar if you're using uh, some kind of tablet or other device. <clears throat> uh, electronic Bible, you might say. So this is the letter to the Philippians. Real quick recap, Paul's writing from prison. <clears throat> He's got people who are, who are, his life has been quote-unquote ruined in, in many ways, and yet Paul is constantly rejoicing. And the reason is because Paul's concern is not so much about his own life and his own circumstances. He sees his own life as being bound together with the life of Christ. So, when his circumstances go bad, he sees himself as participating in the ongoing sufferings of Christ here on earth. But he isn't giving his primary attention to those things. He's actually paying more attention to Christ's victory here on earth than his sufferings. So, Paul's talking about how the gospel is going forth, how the fact that he's in prison <clears throat> has emboldened a lot of other preachers to go out and spread the gospel gospel and how his imprisonment has meant that he's been able to share the gospel with the whole Praetorian Guard. Everybody has heard about it. It's making its way into Caesar's household. And he's he's might be dying, but he's like, look, that means I get to see the Lord face to face. My union with Christ will be complete at that point for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, he says. <clears throat> and so he says in, in chapter two, he's like, hey, you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So so let's not focus on ourselves let's not be conceited thinking that we are the most important thing going on and that we have to compete with other people for resources and compete with other people to get our way let's not do that rather let's put the interests of other people above our own let's be like jesus let's have his mind and what did he do Although he was God, he didn't cling to his rights as God. He didn't cling to all his divine prerogatives. But he emptied himself. He humbled himself. He became a servant. He was obedient to the point of death. Putting the interests of others, his Father and all of us, above his own. And and the Father has exalted him and given him the name above every name. So that every knee should bow and every tongue confess... That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, he says in chapter 2. And he says, okay, so now that this has happened, work out this salvation with fear and trembling because God's at work within you. And he means work it out together as a community, as people. Wrestle, wrestle with the Lord. He's the one who's working in you. Don't work it out as as though uh, God hasn't done enough. But this is an ongoing thing. It has happened it's still happening, and it's going to be completed at some point. So wrestle with it. It's something you live in. It's something you live in, and, and you have to wrestle with. And Paul says, don't, don't grumble and complain about it, but put others before yourself. And then in, in chapter 3, he, he gives a sort of uh, a, a plan of action for himself, regarding the Philippians, how he's going to send them both, uh, both Timothy, who's his, who's his good friend. Uh, this is, uh, this is the end of chapter two. Sorry. I think I said it was in chapter three. This is the end of chapter two. He says, I'm going to send you Timothy and I'm going to send you Epaphroditus. Who's one, who's someone that you sent to me. And in, in giving out this plan, Paul is also setting an example for what he had just talked about. Paul is in prison. He really needs somebody there with him to, uh, Um, To mediate Paul's needs, to go to to gather support, to get food, to get supplies, to meet Paul's needs. He needs somebody there to assist him in prison. It's not like our system where everything is there for you. You just got to show up at the cafeteria at the right time, show up at the weight room at the right time, go exercise at the right time, whatever. No, it's not laid out for you like that. If you're going to stay alive, somebody's got to do something for you. Somebody's got to advocate for you. So Paul's sending, sending them away. And in doing so, he's putting the interests of others above his own. And he says, Timothy does this. And he says, Epaphroditus has already done this. He almost died trying to get to me to help me out. So honor these, honor these guys. So Paul's giving an, an example and also ministering to their needs. He's he's. Uh, putting his money where his mouth is, you might say. And then in chapter 3, he, he gives a, a warning towards, I guess you'd call them, I, I mean, Judaizers is the, is the word that's commonly used. He calls them the dog, people who, are, who want to mutilate the flesh. He says, look out for people who, who try and, and sell you this line that you need to follow Torah that there are certain things that, that you do that really that really buddy you up with God that are necessary in order for you to be made right with God. And he says, if if it could be done on our own effort, I would have been able to do it. Because, because I was at the top of the heat. Paul says. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a, a, a son of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee. He was... He was blameless according to the law he was zealous for the lord he even persecuted the church had people executed he says all that is garbage well he doesn't even say garbage he says doo-doo <laughs> you know he says all of that is is the yucky compared To knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says that's what it's all about. He's all about knowing Jesus and knowing, meaning having this intimate relationship, this this passionate knowledge, just knowing the way a husband and wife know each other. This intermingling of, of persons. Just like we, a husband and wife, have this intermingling of their persons and of their bodies. And Paul says, this one thing I strive after. He says, I want to know Christ in his death and in his resurrection and his persecutions and in the life to come. So this is what I'm striving for. I don't look at what's behind me anymore. I strive towards, he says, the goal of the upward call in Christ Jesus. That's what he's striving for. And then he kind of, he kind of ends that by saying, hey, imitate me in this. Do like I'm doing. Don't be, don't be like these guys who, who think that, um, who, who glory in themselves rather than, than in Jesus, who, who say, I got this. I'm going to do this, 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 and then God will look at me and God will be impressed and then I'll be, and then I'll be okay. Other people will be impressed too. No. Knowing Christ, having, experiencing this kind of intimacy with Christ where you're sharing in his sufferings, sharing in his persecutions, glorying in his victories. That's what Paul's talking about. That's what it's all about. Move in that direction. And he ends, he ends chapter 3 uh, in verse 20 by saying this, "But Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to uh, to subject uh, all things to himself. He's saying all, all this stuff they're telling you to do, to be circumcised, to eat kosher, to follow the feast and the fast, that's all earthly citizenship stuff. Our citizenship is in heaven. We, we long to be united with Christ, to have a body like His. We long for the resurrection, to see Him face to face. Here we go. New text, chapter 4. Oh, I'll just read verse 1, but we'll go from, from 1 to, through 9. Paul says this, Therefore, my brothers, in light of all of this, my brothers and sisters—he means brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown—stand firm thus in the Lord. So he's saying, all that I've said to you, stand firm in it. Don't back down. Don't back down from it. Verse two. I entreat. Here we go. I'm going to butcher some Greek names. I entreat Yodia, and I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion. This is also a Greek word that could be a proper name. Um, It's Syzygus or Syzygus, something like that. It could be a proper name. It could be, it's a word that means true companion. So uh, he's referring to another person, whether it's by their proper name or this is a, a sort of pet name Paul's giving him, true companion. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. We could, we could tack an amen on there, right? Okay, we're going to back up to verse 2. Paul has these two, uh, he, he identifies them as women. There are these two women who, whom he entreats, he doesn't command, he entreats them, he, he begs of them, agree in the Lord. So there's some kind of dispute going on. Paul doesn't give us the details of it, but there's some kind of dispute. There's some kind of disagreement happening between these women. And we don't know, uh, apparently they're, they're influential enough that their disagreement has been made known to Paul, and it's actually affecting other people. Uh, so we don't know exactly if, uh, if they had some kind of status in the church, or if uh, one of them, were, or both of them, were host homes for the church. Keep in mind, at this point, there were no church buildings, right? So they were meeting in homes, and so they might have met in one home most of the time, or they, they might have traded off, I don't know. But either way, there's some kind of tension, some kind of dispute. And Paul encourages them to agree about whatever it is. But notice also that he says to agree in the Lord. I think that's important. Because I don't think that it is the Lord's charge that we should necessarily agree about everything. But we should agree about everything in the Lord. For example, here's here's a, a difficult thing to agree on. How to vote. How to vote in this country. Or whether to vote. Because I don't care where you are on the political spectrum. If the only options are Mr. or Mrs. Democrat and Mr. or Mrs. Republican when it comes to presidential races... Um, Jesus agrees and disagrees with both of them. So there's not one side that's like the Christian side and one side that isn't. There's going to be disagreement. There will be disagreement over perhaps a direction the church should go, how the church should respond to something. Like so, for example, COVID-19. Do we continue to meet? Do, you, do we require masks? Do we have coffee? Do we have childcare? There are, there are goods that we as believers want to cling to and evils we want to avoid. But just how, how strongly we need to go after these goods or have to get them in that particular way is something we won't necessarily agree about. But when it comes to the things of the Lord, what we should agree about is who the Lord is. Who is the true Lord? Who is running the church? Who is running, indeed, the entire world, including the nation? Whoever it is, whatever administration is in the Oval Office, if you're in the United States, at least, God is the one in charge. The Lord Jesus is the one who is running things. And those in authority have a derivative authority that comes from him. We should at the very least agree about that. So, agree in the Lord, Paul instructs them. And then he talks to a third party, another person. Yes, I, uh, I ask you also, true companion, whether that's a name or, or a, some kind of title, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Man, there's so much here. There's so much in this passage. I probably should go pretty quickly. So I'll just mention briefly. <clears throat> Paul asks a third party to kind of mediate, to say, hey, h- help these two. Help these two to get along. And, uh, and he's, he's saying, he's also saying, encouraging them by saying, they have labored with me, side by side in the gospel. Keep in mind, Paul had no problem at all working with women. Some people have this idea because Paul has some harsh things to say about certain women in certain churches, and he has some things to say about women generally in regards to being daughters of Eve, you might say. So people think Paul is this is this uh, chauvinist, and he's a woman hater. Paul here is commending a couple of women whom he says are his partners, who work side by side along with him in the gospel, and he's gathering a third party to say, "Hey, mediate," and so that so that. These women can continue to work side by side with me in the gospel. He also says this. Notice that he says this with Clement, which is another. There's a fourth person in there. And he says, the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. They're equal co-heirs of the inheritance that God has for us. There's this thing, very briefly, that comes up. In several places by several different authors in scripture, because ultimately God is the author, this thing called the book of life. And whether this is just a metaphor or it's like an actual physical thing, the book of, of life refers to, I guess you'd call it a document. A document with names in it. And those names are the names of the people whom the Lord has chosen before the foundation of the world to inherit not only his eternal life, but his riches. God, the triune God, created, In order to give himself to creation, and to give creation to his son. Which means also giving creation to his son's bride, which is you and I. We are inheritors of the riches of Christ. Those of us whose names are written in the book of life. Is your name written there? Is your name written there? Do you want it to be? It's very simple. Just bend the knee to the Lord Jesus and say, you are God and I am not. It's a very difficult difficult thing to do in practice, to live as though Jesus is Lord and I am not. But God sees your heart when you say, Lord, help. When I am the master, when I am the Lord, it doesn't work out. Things are in their improper place. I need you to be Lord. I need you to be Lord. Come and fill my heart and life. Transform me. Write my name in the book of life. He'll do it. He will do that for you. And tell someone about it. Tell somebody. If you're somehow hearing this, you could email me, Josh at PDX dot org. I'd love to hear and talk with you. Anyways, okay, verse verse four. Oh boy, we we really got to go quick. Okay, verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This is one of those verses that goes on like a, a sort of promise card. Paul mentions the words joy and rejoice more in this letter than anywhere else in the New Testament or anywhere else in Scripture. The density of this joy and rejoicing uh, language is here in this letter, where Paul is in prison, where his life has apparently fallen apart. Rejoice in the Lord. Do you know that you can do that? You can do that. No matter how difficult your circumstances are. And... I know there might be people hearing this who have very, very, very difficult circumstances. And you might think, this is impossible. It makes me angry to hear you say this. Rejoice in the Lord? How can I rejoice in the Lord? My child just died. My child is sick. Or I just lost my job, whatever it is. Paul doesn't say, notice he doesn't say, rejoice in your circumstances. He doesn't say, rejoice in the trauma and pain of life. He says, rejoice in the Lord. That's the key, is to have our minds fixed on the Lord. If we do have our minds fixed on Him, The one who humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, emptied himself, became a servant, was tortured and died on a cross. If we have our minds fixed on him, then we will be able to rejoice in the Lord always. Verse 5, let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious for anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, here's another promise card thing. Promise Bible verse. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication, which means asking the Lord for things, uh, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and God's going to give you this peace that surpasses all understanding. It's like a promise. And that's a wonderful promise. It's a promise that we cling to and we should cling to, especially when we're very anxious and bent out of shape with worry because life is hard. We live in a dark and violent world. And trauma is headed our way, regardless of how well you play it. It's going to hurt. I don't care how rich and how wealthy you are. Baby, baby, you got problems. You're going to have problems. Even Jeff Bezos has a family. He got a divorce and lost a lot of his wealth. He's still very wealthy, but I'm sure that hurt. Not just about the money, but the relational break. Super wealthy people got problems too. They hurt. It's coming. It's going to happen. What are you going to do when that happens? Where are you going to go with your anxiety? Because you're going to go somewhere. I remember someone saying, uh, worry or anxiety is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. That is true. That's largely true. Unless, unless that rocking chair is filled with prayer. (laughs) Unless you take that anxiety and that worry and you take it straight to the Lord. And you ask him, remember he says with prayer and supplication, which it has particularly to do with asking. So there's a way, prayer prayer means talking to God. So there's a way in which you can take your anxiety to God and you just simply talk to him about it. But you don't actually ask him to do something. So that's why he says with prayer and supplication and asking him, begging him, Lord, please take this from me, please change me so that I'm not so anxious. And he says with thanksgiving, thank you for what you've done. Let your request be made known to God. Now, I'm going to mention one more thing that's very often overlooked in here. And that is the beginning of the sentence. Verse 6 is not at the beginning of a sentence. That actually comes before it. It says, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. See, that's a big thing that we forget. It's a big reason why we become anxious. Because we don't remember that the Lord is at hand. And two things can be... uh, There are two things that this can mean. And they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. The Lord is at hand can mean he's coming. He's returning. Any moment he might arrive. Any moment he might appear. He might appear in his second coming. And human history is wrapped up. Or he might, your deliverance, he might appear in the form of your deliverance from whatever it is. That might come at any moment. So wait for it. Look for it. Look for him to appear in some form or another. The second thing that this, that this could mean, once again, these aren't exclusive to one another. The second thing he might mean is the Lord is at hand means he's right here. He's at your hand. He's right next to you. He isn't somewhere far off when you pray. You're not praying to you're not you're not sending out like radio waves and hoping that they don't dissipate by the time they make it there. He's right here with you. He actually dwells inside of you if you know. The Lord is omnipresent, which means he is fully present everywhere. There's nowhere he is not. The Lord Is at hand. He's with you. He's right there. That's a good reason to have confidence. When we have anxiety, to start praying, to start asking, and to start thinking. The Lord is at hand. You might insert a therefore. Do not Be anxious. But with everything, prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. i got to keep moving on. Verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And whatever you have, ha- you have uh, learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul has this list of things. And he begins with whatever is, whatever is, whatever is, whatever is. True, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. Then he says, think about these things. This is, a, this is like an empowerment promise here, what Paul is giving us. Now, this list of things, I, I, I'm among those who don't think that there's, that there's something particularly unique about each of these things, where it's, it's like some kind of secret formula or combination. I think it's kind of ad hoc. What Paul is, he's grabbing, he's grabbing hold of different, um, different aspects of life and things that happen. And saying, whatever's like this. And notice, these are all positive and good and wonderful things. And he's saying, think about those things. Set your mind on those things. And I can tell you by experience, this makes a difference. You know, there, there was this um, school of psychology called the power of positive thinking. And it was all kind of kooky in some ways. But there's, a, there's an element of truth to it. If you set your mind on the negatives... If you were to reverse this and say, whatever is violent, whatever is uh, dark, whatever is displeasing, whatever is evil, whatever is upsetting, or whatever is on the news, basically, whatever you see in the news, if you dwell in that zone, if, you, if your mind, if the, real of your, if the real estate of your mind is occupied, by what's going on in the world what's wrong with the world which also means essentially with what the devil is doing in the world how the devil's screwing things up it's going to drag you down and your anxiety is going to go through the roof however if the real estate of your mind is taken up if all the properties purchased, are things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, you will find yourself less anxious. I was reading about Fred Rogers a little bit earlier this week, and one of the things that he said was when... um, When a crisis was happening and and you're afraid, he said his mom told him this, whenever you're scared because there's something big and, and nasty that looks like it's happening, look for the helpful people. That is, look for the good things that are happening in the midst of it. Focus your attention on that. And Fred Rogers took that to heart, and he took that into his television program, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And in fact, Fred Rogers was a voice that people looked to. They have looked to in times of crisis when things were hard. He had very encouraging and helpful things to say, and people looked to him. It's very influential. Why? Because he was doing this. When you get overwhelmed by life, when it's just too much, When there's too much going on that's bad, and you feel anxious, take it to the Lord. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Ask Him. Ask Him to take it from you. Ask Him to alleviate the stress. Thank Him for the good things that He has done. And then set your mind on these things that Paul mentions: whatever's good, true, lovely, honorable, excellent, worthy of praise. Set your mind on those things. and you'll find your anxiety going down. And you'll, you'll find yourself without having to create a program, practicing the things that Paul is doing. He says, whatever you've heard and received and learned and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. You'll know that the God of peace is with you. If you're focusing on this, if you're speaking to him, if you know that the Lord is at hand, you'll be able to do that. Well, that was a rapid run through a lot of material Maybe next time I would would convert this into two or three. But that's going to be it for now. I will just leave you with this one, uh, one charge. Go to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Some of you hearing this are anxious and you have been anxious for a long time. And you feel powerless against it. You feel plagued by it and powerless against it. And you don't know what to do. Maybe you've even brought it to the Lord. Maybe you've been praying about it for a long time. It can be easy to bring it to the Lord in a way that you're just shouting and and actually circling the problem in the presence of God. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But you don't take the time to actually say, Lord, take this away from me. Lord, take this from me. Sometimes we do that because we become so used to things being this way. And we are afraid of change. Because if the Lord actually took it from us, we wouldn't know what to do. The rocking chair gives us something to do. But it doesn't take us anywhere. Another thing you might do, say, Lord, take this from me. Very often we forget to thank the Lord. Set your mind on Jesus. Look for the things to be thankful for. Look for things to be thankful for. Like Paul says right here, whatever's true, honorable, just, lovely, worthy of praise. Look for those things and thank the Lord for them. You know, uh, people who do brain research have learned that when your mind is preoccupied and fixated on something, it actually builds connections in your brain, these neural pathways, and they become like a highway. They become like a freeway. And it becomes easier and easier and easier to do the same thing. So if you're anxious you will become more and more and more and more anxious, and it will become more and more and more and more difficult not to be. If you do what Paul is saying here, what he's suggesting, if you start to move your mind towards something else, whether it's by asking the Lord to relieve you of anxiety, looking at things that are worthy, thanking God for them, as you turn your mind towards those other things, you build new neural pathways and those become the highway that your mind naturally will gravitate then back towards. It actually rewires your brain. Now, in Paul's time, he didn't necessarily know that. I don't know, unless the Lord might have revealed it to him. But isn't it amazing how the instruction the Lord gives us is actually really good for us. Later on, science discovers that this is really, really good for you. There's like a science of prayer and meditation that says, this is really, really good for people. This is really good for you to do. Well, I don't know. The Lord already told us about it. It's sad that we don't believe the Lord, but we do believe science. But nevertheless, whether it's the Lord or science... We can come to him. I'm going to pray for anyone who is really anxious right now. Father, I thank you that you were always available, that you were always at hand. I thank you that you were not unable to sympathize with our weakness. Lord, some of us feel really weak this morning, and you were able to sympathize. Because you yourself became like us. And for that alone, Lord, we can give thanks. We can give thanks to you. Thank you for that. That is true and lovely and good and honorable and worthy of praise. Thank you, Lord. And I ask right now, Lord, for anybody in the sound of my voice who's feeling racked and overwhelmed by anxiety, I ask, we plead with you, Lord, take that anxiety from them. Take that anxiety from us. Lord, we lift it to you right now and say, Lord, take this. We don't want this. We don't want to keep carrying these heavy burdens. We want to take your yoke upon us. For you said your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Help us to look to and see and occupy our minds with the things that are true, good, and honorable, and lovely, and just, and worthy of praise. And to thank you always. In Jesus' name, amen.